Y'all come in and, and grab a seat and we'll get going. Let me open us up in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning, thankful for the new day that you've given, thankful that this is the Lord's day and a day of rest and gladness for your people. And Lord, we pray that you would attend to us as we reflect upon your work of providence in the past and your preservation of the church in spite of many difficulties. We pray, O Lord, that you would further equip us to contend for the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. And it would be our concern to maintain the purity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, last week we had a dizzying survey of very distressing and unbiblical ideas that were emerging in Presbyterian circles. And we talked about the new divinity or new school, which really sought to bring together Christian doctrine with emerging Enlightenment ideas that man is basically good and he's capable of anything he puts his mind to. Well, I hope we recognize the danger of false doctrine uh, J.C. Ryle put it this way, we should no more tolerate false doctrine than we should tolerate sin. Why is that? Well, because false doctrine is sin. And we must love Jesus who is the truth. And we can't speak the truth to one another and bear witness to the truth if we don't know what the truth is. We have to guard the truth. And yet we saw last week as the church was eyeing the frontier, which would have been upstate New York and the Northwest Territory, Ohio and Michigan and places like that, the church was focusing on success, a harvest of souls rather than purity of doctrine, and they ignored the rise of various doctrinal threats. And the argument of the day was this great opportunity for evangelism, it just isn't a good time for theological debate. Uh, doctrine divides, ministry unites was the claim. Now, if you remember your New Testament, uh, Galatians is a book, or Acts 15, uh, the great general assembly of the First Presbyterian Church in Jerusalem, it, it would argue otherwise. Because when did the de great debate about how we're saved emerge? What, what does a Gentile need to, be do, uh, need to do to be saved? Does he have to be circumcised? When did that whole debate take place? It was in the midst of great opportunity as the gospel is advancing. We can't ever stop contending for the faith because the devil is always bringing threats in the midst of growth. Well, under the new school with Nathaniel Taylor, we saw last week, the following Christian doctrines had been rejected. Original sin moved to inherited sin and nobody's born guilty. Total depravity was jettisoned in favor of a spark of goodness in man. Sounds good if you're a country song singer, right? But it just isn't true, biblically speaking. Jesus' penal substitutionary atonement, that Christ satisfied the justice of God for our particular law-breaking, that was changed, that Jesus simply died on the cross to show God doesn't like sin, and God is ready to forgive anyone who obeys Christ. And then the cross of Christ just appeals to us to see God's love and choose Jesus. Regeneration or the new birth, it was claimed to be within our power. We just need persuasion. We need the Holy Spirit 
nudging us, giving us the elbow to change ourselves. We don't really need a resurrection because our wills are free to follow God. They're not in bondage. These aberrant doctrines, and many more actually, came to roost in Charles Finney, the great American revivalist. And we're going to resume this morning with him. Now, we're going to look at three figures this morning, uh, and each of them represent an abandonment among Presbyterians of the historic Christian faith as we kind of build up to Machen's day. First, we're going to look at Finney's attack on Calvinism and his new measures and his emerging social emphasis. And then we're going to look at a man named Charles Briggs and his contention for a fallible Bible, a Bible that can make mistakes, and his anti-supernaturalistic views. And then finally, we'll look at Henry Sloan Coffin, who is the leading liberal theologian or liberal uh, proponent in Machen's day among the Presbyterians. And he'll embody Schleiermacher's Christian philosophy that doctrine is just deep feeling expressed in flawed words. It's all about experience. So first, we get to Finney. Now, I neglected to mention last week that Finney was a Presbyterian. Sorry, uh, it's a bad news. Uh, Finney was converted at the age of 29 in Adams, New York, under a Presbyterian preacher by the name of George Gale, who had been trained at Princeton. Gale quickly brought Finney under his tutelage, and he encouraged him in the work of evangelism. But while Gale was training Finney, Finney firmly rejected Gale's theological convictions. But for George Gale, it was one of those ministry is more important than doctrine moments. In fact, Finney would explain later in life that he thought Princeton's theological training actually trained men in irrelevant matters. Detailed thoughts on Christian doctrine. That that was irrelevant in Finney's mind. Shockingly, when Finney went before the Presbytery of St. Lawrence, also in New York, and was asked if he received the Westminster Confession of Faith, the doctrinal standard for the Presbyterian Church, summarizing Scripture, he said, I have never examined it with any attention. Or, I've never read it. He said he received the confession for substance of doctrine so far as I understand it. That basically means I'll take what I like and ditch what I don't. It's subjectivism applied to theology. And the presbytery licensed him anyway. And the rest is history. Now, in Finney's mind, Calvinism couldn't be true. Uh, because God can't demand that men repent if men cannot repent. Men must have the power to do what God's commands, to do God's commands. And he called the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith cannotism. And he said that that has to be replaced by telling the sinner that he can change. He has the power of ultimate choice within himself. Regeneration lies in man's power alone. Do you see how contrary that is to grace alone by which we're saved? Regeneration lies in man's power alone. 
Now, Asahel Nettleton, great 19th century Congregationalist preacher, pushed back against Finney's fallacious doctrine. And he said this. This is a long quote, but I'm going to read it. Nettleton says, There are many who think they see a great inconsistency in the preaching of ministers. Ministers, they say, talking about Finney, contradict themselves. They tell us to do and then tell us we cannot do. They call upon sinners to believe and repent and then tell them that faith and repentance are a gift of God. That some do preach in this manner cannot be denied. I well recollect an instance. A celebrated preacher in one of his discourses used this language. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In another discourse, this same preacher said, no one can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Now, what think you, my hearers, of such preaching? Would you have charged him with contradicting himself? This preacher, you will remember, was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have no doubt that many ministers have followed his example. It's a mic drop moment. Well, in addition to these massive theological missteps by which Finney is actually digging up a heresy of the 3rd and 4th century called Pelagianism, Finney also adds to the excesses of revivalism that we saw last week, plus his own new measures. And I'll try to quickly go through these new measures. These were new models for effective evangelism that Finney is basically inventing. He would visit towns without the invitation of any minister and then call anybody questioning his doctrine unconverted. So imagine this guy standing and preaching and calling, well, that Presbyterian over there, he's just unconverted. And that Baptist over there, he's just unconverted because they were bothered by his false doctrine. Second, he called out unconverted people by name to single them out in service is bound for hell. So let's say Benny is over there and he's saying, while he's preaching, Benny's an unconverted man. Benny's going to hell. Benny needs to repent. Benny, you need to turn. And it's this massive emotional manipulation in the midst of the host of his congregation or group gathering. He used protracted meetings. These would be meetings over the course of multiple nights. Y'all ever heard of a scheduled revival? This is where this comes from. Uh, where he was also using women to publicly pray and to preach. He was using dramatic music to play on the emotions. You ever heard of the, you know, play just as I am 34 times until somebody comes down and says that they're rededicating their lives? This is where this comes from. Um, little attention was given to Scripture. There would be an announced Scripture to preach and then, you know, run off on whatever he wanted to say. And then there's the famous anxious bench. This was the seat at the front of the church or the tent to which those convicted of sin were to come for prayer. And it's synonymous with the altar call. And the manipulation would go, if while the music is playing, of course, if you don't want Christ, you just stay in your seat. But if you want to be converted, if you want Jesus, come down to the front. And these kind of appeals would go on and on and on. And then the moment you came down to the front, you were immediately admitted to the membership in the church. This is a, an actual anxious bench. It, it says, you can't probably see it there, the way of transgressors is hard. So again, manipulating people to, to come up to the front. 
Now, in view of Finney's man-centered manipulation, uh, Charles Hodge had something to say about it. Hodge is Princetonian, Presbyterian, and he wrote that since Christianity was brought into existence by the Lord Jesus Christ, since its inception, it has been plagued by conflict between two competing doctrinal systems. The one has for its object the vindication of divine supremacy and sovereignty in the salvation of men. God saves sinners. The other theological system has for its characteristic aim the assertion of the rights of human nature. It, this man-centered system, is specially solicitous that nothing should be held true which cannot be philosophically reconciled with the liberty and ability of man. God saves sinners, man saves himself. Now, Finney's false doctrine is the fruit of the Enlightenment. If we went back two weeks ago to Kant, man's will is king. Man determines everything. And Jesus Christ, in His sovereign and mighty grace, as king, is just thrust to the side. Finney's can-do theology, it's really works-based salvation, not surprisingly led to two additional problems that will emerge. One would be the poison of perfectionism. That man can be perfect. He can be good enough to be perfect. Now, this wasn't a new idea. Uh, it's found in Wesleyan thinkers already in the century before, but it really becomes prominent here. And then the second problem is the rise of a social gospel. You just think of the consequences of this. When, when sin is minimized and God's saving grace in Christ is presented as not really being that important, what is Christianity really about? Well, it's not about your soul being saved from sin and judgment, the individual soul being reconciled to God. Christianity becomes about raising man up to his ultimate goodness, humanitarianism. And this is done by seeking the betterment of man in society. Kingdom progress, building the kingdom, is defined as doing good to your fellow man. So in the 19th century, Finney and others, and this will really come to full flower in the next generation, they began to emphasize the necessity of social causes, the Christian necessity of social causes. But what inevitably happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ takes a back seat to the latest social evil? And I'm not talking really about generic evil. I'm talking about big evils like slavery, massive public drunkenness, Sabbath breaking, prostitution, oppression through wretched child labor practices, horrible evils. But there's a theological question here. What is the mission of the church? Is the church's mission, the corporate institutional church through its officers, is the church's mission to cause political change, to focus on every societal evil in society and fix it and to pursue the transformation of the social order? What's the primary message of the gospel? Is it to proclaim Christ's saving work? Or is it to proclaim Christ's example 
that leads to social change? Or to ask it differently, what's your pastor supposed to be doing? Is he called to lead marches, marches and protests against every societal ill or to preach Jesus Christ and shepherd souls? Now, brethren, this is going to be a major issue related to things that Machen will take up and how liberals speak of Christianity. Is Christianity a life? Is it simply a matter of doing certain things or not doing certain things? Is Christianity a focus on saving industry, saving education, saving government? Or is Christianity a doctrine believed and thus the historical proclamation of Christ and His cross? Is Christianity the declaration of what God has done in Christ, which then touches the life of the believer? When the doctrine of salvation is emptied of the seriousness of sin, and Jesus' death on the cross is made merely an example of sacrificial love, the only message you have to proclaim is the Beatles. All you need is love. And then you're sunk into nothing but good works. Salvation by grace alone dies. Is that biblical? I hope you're recognizing. No. Now, this is a massive issue, and I could spend the whole time talking about the mission of the church. I can't do that. I've got to move on. But this is so crucial if you're going to understand Machen's critique of liberalism. All right, I hasten on to guy number two, a Presbyterian professor named Charles A. Briggs. He was first a student of and then a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And this seminary was under the oversight of the Presbyterian Church. That will be important in just a minute. Now, in the context in which Briggs does his theological study, first at Union Seminary, and then he goes to, you guessed it, Germany for three years, University of Berlin, where Schleiermacher had taught. There, Briggs experiences a new divine light as he describes it. The context in which Briggs lives is a really changing world. First of all, biblical scholarship, thanks to the Enlightenment, uh, has brought about massive anti-supernaturalism. Immanuel Kant, whom we heard about a couple weeks ago, had encouraged a throwing off of all authorities. Church, Scripture, throw it away. And the slogan was, Dare to know. It sounds so great, doesn't it? Dare to know. Look at what we can achieve. And then Schleiermacher, again, as we heard two weeks ago, not refuting Kant, made Christianity just about the feelings, one's experience with God. So in the realm of biblical studies, this dare to know attitude moved to people saying things like this. We're emerging from our immaturity, from the tutelage of previous generations who believed in silly things like the supernatural. Now, Briggs doesn't embrace everything I'm about to characterize, but it's the thought moving in his circles. Scholars were saying things like, look, we know miracles don't happen. We know there is no resurrection from the dead. 
We know that all ancient writings, therefore, are mythological in nature. Maybe the scriptures have a kernel of truth, but they don't give us the facts. We, we have to explain these miracles in naturalistic ways to explain. You know that feeding of the 5,000 thing? That was just a kid sharing his lunch. And everybody was encouraged to the miracle of sharing. You know that Jesus walking on water thing? He was just close to the shore. It just appeared he was walking. You know that resurrection from the dead thing? Well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He swooned and he woke up in the tomb. That's one of my favorites. So absurd. The Scriptures, these people claimed, are not inerrant records. Man always makes mistakes. So while the church previously set matters down in light of the supernatural in their creeds, we just need to throw off the creeds of the church. Further, we need to get behind the mythological stories in Scripture, the fanciful ideas, and we can just uncover what's real. They described it like the layers of an onion. You just peel back the layers and you can get to the kernel of truth. Of course, if you keep peeling the layers of an onion, what do you end up with? Absolutely nothing. Well, in the process of this, a handful of conclusions were drawn, and these are the things that Briggs would embrace. There are four. The Bible, he argued, is a fallible document. It's a fallible document. It, it makes mistakes. It is inspired, get this, in the sense that it makes an inward spiritual impression. But its infallibility does not extend to the actual words on the page. Do you hear the Schleiermachian influence? What is true, infallible, and inspired is the inward feeling of truth and not the Bible itself. And then Briggs, along with others, argued that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. Moses didn't receive the law from God on the mountain in some supernatural event. The law just developed over time. It was written by a handful of authors who were edited together. Also, the prophets, they never really prophesied anything in the sense of predicting the future. Nobody can predict the future. That's supernatural. The prophets just wrote after all the events had happened and then wrote about it as if they spoke of it before it happened. Uh, might that be a lie? Just maybe? And while the early church had looked at Jesus from above, that is, they looked at Jesus from a supernatural perspective, what we need to do in our enlightened age is start focusing on Jesus from below. Jesus is a man. Jesus is the greatest teacher. Jesus has the great model of love. Let's dispense with all the miracle stories. Now, in this same context, 1859, Charles Darwin's famous or infamous on the origin of the species is published with its new understanding of human origins. Darwin's book really fit with the spirit of the age, the optimism about man. Look at what man can discover. Look at what we scientifically can explain in a throwing off of authority. But interestingly, Darwin's theory really can't be reduced to biological development because what they did is they applied Darwin's theory to the evolution of thought, the evolution of social structures, the evolution of religion. And the arrogant ideas of the 18th and 19th centuries were, we have evolved to know better. Oh, those stupid ancients. 
We know so much better. And you really see Lewis's critique, again, the chronological snobbery of previous generations where we uncritically accept the ideas of the present and we dismiss all ideas of the past. Look at our progress. Look at the vast industrialization. We built the Brooklyn Bridge. We can do anything. And this is the lifting up of man, exalting man's great ideas. Briggs just gobbles this stuff up, hook, line, and sinker. Now, in this Presbyterian context, two things happen. One, Briggs starts arguing in the 1880s for the reunion of Christendom and the abandonment of creeds. And he said, look, we need to ditch this rigid commitment to the theology of the past. Orthodoxism, he called it. Briggs wanted to totally revise the Westminster Confession of Faith in order to unite with a host of other professing Christians. And then secondly, January 20th, 1891, Briggs was made the chair of biblical studies at Union Theological Seminary. And immediately after he took vows where he accepted the Scriptures as the only rule of faith and practice, like right after he'd said that, he gave an address called The Authority of Holy Scripture where he claimed there were three fountains of divine authority, the Bible, the church, and reason. But the Bible contained errors and reason could figure them out. So what's really the authority? Reason. This address unsettled many, soon leading to an unusual three-day debate in New York State Presbytery. Can you imagine going for Presbytery and it lasted for three days? I don't know why it took so long to figure out this guy needed to be tried as a heretic, but three-day debate and the heresy trial of Charles Augustus Briggs moves forward. In 1891, the General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to veto his appointment to the Chair of Biblical Studies. Again, Presbytery, or the denomination was over that seminary. And then in 1893, he was found guilty of heresy and suspended from the ministry. You might be thinking, okay, wow, this is good. Finally, they did something. It might seem like a win. However, though Briggs left to become an Episcopalian, and Union Seminary just said, you know what, we don't want to be associated with the denomination anyway. We'll just pull out. As the main proponent of confessional revision, his ideas stick around. And just a few years later, people are calling in earnest to a full-scale revision of the doctrines of the church. Now, B.B. Warfield, uh, also at Princeton and one of Machen's mentors, he staunchly opposed this tampering with the confession of faith. Uh, in, but in 1903, just 10 years after the Briggs trial, a number of changes were made to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Statements that toned down the sovereignty of God. There was a chapter added on the love of God for all humanity and missions. And at the very least, these changes obscured God's electing grace, the Holy Spirit effectually calling sinners to life, and Jesus dying on the cross to save His people from their sins. All of these issues were infuriating to Warfield, and in speaking against them, 
he said this, look, the marvel of marvels is not that God in His infinite love has not elected all this guilty race to be saved, but that He has elected any. That God would save anyone should be what's blowing you away. Nevertheless, these confessional changes, which wiped away the doctrine of election, tampered with the decrees of God, allowing for free willism, they were adopted. And no surprise, I mentioned this last week, the doctrinally deviant Columbian, I'm sorry, Cumberland Presbyterian Church merged back together with the denomination, the PCUS in the north. And this is right before Machen comes to the scene in prominence. Now, in this context, distinctive Christianity, that is, what constitutes Christianity as a doctrinal system, is being obscured because Christianity was being called certain social action, or Christianity is a particular inward feeling of love, or the favorite liberal mantra. Christianity is, tell me if you've heard this, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. That's Christian. Well, Warfield again said, look, if everything that is called Christianity these days is Christianity, then there is no such thing as Christianity. A name applied indiscriminately to everything designates nothing. Now, Christianity is something. It's something very specific. And this is what Machen's fight in the book Christianity and Liberalism is going to be. All right, that leads us to the third Presbyterian of the day, Henry Sloan Coffin, pastor of Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in, you guessed it, where? New York. Sorry, Jacob. Uh, associate professor at Union Seminary and self-designated liberal evangelical. What in the world is that? Well, hang on. But you can already tell from his, uh, his mug on Time Magazine, this, you can't see the date, it's 1926. This is three years after Machen writes Christian and liberalism. You see who wins, not the conservatives. Um, the world is hailing the liberals as the victor of those who are right. Now, Coffin's father was a wealthy lawyer at the center of the social scene in New York. Uh, he was said to be an honest man, but he never joined a church. He said he couldn't reconcile the scientific findings of the day with traditional Christian beliefs. So he just didn't join the church. He was a pew holder at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church, and he was the lawyer for Union Theological Seminary but he didn't even offer a profession of faith. Now, as the Union Seminary lawyer, he was wrapped up in that Briggs heresy trial, and he took his son, young Henry, along. Henry Coffin would say later in life that it was the, quote, less educated and more intolerant elements of the church that had attacked Briggs and drove him out. In, Coffin's, in Sloan Coffin's mind, Charles Briggs should have never been tried for heresy. You can already tell where this is going. But let me tell you a little bit about Coffin's theology. Coffin was trained at New College in Edinburgh, Scotland. It's a seminary that was embracing all the evolutionary thought, all the higher critical thinking seen in Charles Briggs. And that descent of the modernists, there's a famous uh, newspaper cartoon of sorts. If you start denying things, no miracles, no virgin birth, where do you lead? Atheistic thinking. 
Coffin, to his mother's great grief, his mother was a godly and conservative woman who actually had taught her son the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Coffin rejected all of the biblically conservative ideas that his mother had taught him. He would say later of the Shorter Catechism, many of its found formulations, many of its formulations are obsolete and I am not passing it on to another generation. In 1898, Coffin wrote home to his mother, Don't worry about the heresy of New College. The Scotch church seems to stand it and preach better sermons than the bluest Princetonians. I'm getting plenty of good Calvinism and lots of the confession of faith, only with a new interpretation. What in the world is this new interpretation? A new interpretation that would be furthered by the study in Germany, actually, Coffin would study with the same man who almost undid Machen. You'll hear about that next week. So what's the new learning? Well, the Bible is not infallible. The Bible makes mistakes. Coffin would write, and I quote, any man of brains and familiar with modern ways of looking at things will feel that the Bible's assertions are just untenable. None of us have brains this morning, according to this man. Because if you believe the Bible is God's authoritative, infallible, inerrant truth, you're just an idiot. That's what he's saying. What about the doctrinal statement of the Westminster Confession of Faith? Well, here's what he's going to say about that. When, when Coffin was ordained, it's the year 1900, he had to subscribe to the Confession. So he said, this is how I understand my subscription to the Confession. The formula of subscription means to me, we're already on a bad start, that under the supreme authority of Christ, I receive the confession as setting forth in 17th century thought and language, the principal doctrines which have grown out of and foster the religious experience of Protestant evangelical Christians. What in the world is he saying? He's saying... The Westminster Confession of Faith records the Christian experience of 17th century people. That doesn't mean I, as an emerging 20th century person, have to accept their doctrinal formulations. I can take their words and use them to talk about what I mean by them. Have y'all discovered a problem with language in our day where you're using the same word that I'm using, but you don't seem to know what that word means? Or you're totally using it out of context to how it's ever been used before? You're redefining the terms? This is classic liberalism. So what did Coffin actually believe? Well, you're going to hear Schleiermacher's thinking in him. You're already hearing it, really, about Christian experience being the focus. He wrote a book in 1912 called Some Christian Conviction, subtitle, A Practical Restatement in Terms of Present-Day Thinking. You already know we're not headed to a good place. Let me redefine Christianity is what he's saying. And then he said, I'll read this again. The life of men with Christ and God preserves its continuity through the ages. It has to interpret itself in every generation in new forms of thought. What's he saying? Christianity always has to change because Christianity has to merge with the new idea. The precious ore of religious experience continues, but it bears the stamp of the current ruling ideas 
in men's view of the world. So it's not a core of doctrine that remains. No, no, that's dispensed. The core of experience remains. In other words, history as a record of facts, which will be Machen's vital thought in Christianity and liberalism. History is irrelevant. History is just the experience of people in the past put in, put in flawed words. So our conceptions of truth, he's saying, of doctrine, it just changes with the times. Religion is experience. He goes on to say the, the job of the minister of God was not to repeat what others have said in Scripture or out of Scripture. He is to say what he is sure of because he has experienced it. In other words, you preach what you feel to be true. So if you come to a doctrine that you don't feel to be true, you, you just don't preach it. How do you know what's true? Well, Machen will say, truth rests on God's revelation, on the facts of history as they record in the Bible. Coffin will say, try the doctrine by using it. If it's of no service to you, that is, if you don't really like it, it doesn't seem useful to you, just let it go. He says, look, the Bible can't be used as a treasury of proof texts for doctrines, for laws of conduct, for specific provisions about government or worship. He just threw away all ethics, all Presbyterian church government, the regular principle of worship, and any doctrinal formulation. He says, Scripture just shows us the norm of our life with God, that we must experience God. This is maybe the worst Coffin said of God, God is to me that creative force behind and in the universe who manifests himself as energy, as life, as order, as beauty, as thought, as conscience, as love. I don't know what you think, but it sounds like this to me. <clears throat> God's just a force. Um, and I can make him be whatever I want to be depending on how I experience it. He would argue Jesus is the Word of God, but we know Jesus' Word not by reading the Bible, but by testing the Bible by the Spirit of Christ in us. So really, my heart judges what's true. Experience is king. In Coffin's thinking, nothing is historical at all. Uh, the five fundamentals are not fundamental. It doesn't matter if you believe in the virgin birth or the miracles of Christ or the bodily resurrection of Christ and so forth. What is supernatural is just seeing the religious experience of Jesus. Jesus had a, a God consciousness and we want to discover in us a God consciousness. Gone is the problem of sin. Gone is the solution of the cross. And what man needs to do is just rise up to be more like Jesus. We don't need to affirm a particular statement like the Apostles' Creed. We just need to see in Jesus a revelation of what man can become. Now, with these views, three things happen. And we'll wrap up with this. Number one, doctrine becomes irrelevant. Doctrines don't matter at all. The important matter is not the orthodoxy of your doctrine. It's just your personal experience with God. Coffin would say in explaining the Trinity, it's just a man-made attempt to talk about God. Um, you don't really have to embrace that. You can just experience Him. 
Second, with doctrine pushed away, union with other Christians becomes prominent in his thinking. He's a leading voice pushing that the PCUSA unite with 18 other Protestant denominations. Now that would fail, but it shows you the spear of the age. And then third, why put, push doctrine aside and unite? Because the church's job was to transform the world into the kingdom of God. The gospel is not salvation from sin and reconciliation with God. The gospel is reshape society. He said, the preacher must teach people how to live together in families, industries, nations, and in, earthwide, in the earthwide brotherhood of mankind. The church exists to conquer all kingdoms of this world, art, science, industry, education, politics, for God and for His Christ. He also commented, look, if the Christian is trying to transform this city of destruction into the city of God, you have to have the cooperation with every other Christian. Your job is too vast to inquire closely as to what a man's orthodox doctrine is. Now, here's the question, brethren. Is this Christianity? J.C. Ryle called this nothing Arianism. You believe nothing of biblical substance. Who is God? What has Christ done? What is the truth? Where do we find the truth? How can we be made right with God? All these doctrinal questions are totally ignored in the pursuit of social activism. Make the world one kingdom, a vast utopia, bringing in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, Coffin wants a universal display of the church. No denominations, and he wants to advocate humanitarianism. Teach the world to be like Jesus. And do you remember that WWJD thing? Where did it come from? Right here. Only focus on ethics. It should be, rather, WHJD. What has Jesus done. And we proclaim that and call men to repent, to trust in Jesus. What did the cross achieve? Well, if you're a liberal, nothing. The cross did nothing. Because Jesus has been narrowed to simply providing a moral example. So salvation becomes save yourself with your tolerance and love. Just don't tolerate those who don't get on the tolerance train. Is this the message of our Savior? Who clearly engaged in doctrinal controversy with the Jewish religious leadership and rebuked them and taught the truth? Is this the way Jesus approached the Bible? Jesus has no problem quoting Moses like Moses really wrote it and addressing people from the truth of the Old Testament Scriptures. Did Jesus ever teach us to ignore the Word of God and just feel God? Is the church to become the brotherhood of mankind so that all are saved and really there is no hell? What's the lesson we should take from this? Maybe there are a lot of them, but maybe something personal. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, I picked on Jacob about New York. Why are all these crazy thinkers coming out of New York? Because it's the seat of intellectual ideas, secular ideas coming into the United States at the time. And we've got to learn to examine every secular concept critically in light of the standard of the Word of God. 
are we doing that? Are we careful? Are we visiting our own presuppositions, whatever we hold to be true, and weighing them against the Word of God? That's a major issue. And then, of course, we have to recognize that it's the Bible itself that defines what we're to hold. And we're not looking for some other standard. Man may come up with some great ideas, but we need to keep asking, is this biblical? Do I see this in the Word of God? According to Henry Sloan Coffin's thought and what's developing, what we're seeing here, is that the world has really thought we're a bunch of idiots for almost 200 years. And some of you are very frustrated by the post-Christian age in which you live, but the ideas of post-Christian thinking have been here for a very long time. The cultural rot was set in a long time ago. We're just seeing the fruit of cultural rot. How do we ever combat that cultural rot? Well, we can't just stop preaching the truth of the Bible and the doctrines that are found therein, preaching the cross, and go engage in marches. We have to proclaim the Word of God because what is the means that God uses to save sinners and ultimately change the world? It's the preaching of the Word. Don't you love that second? We're going to get to it eventually in in the book of Acts when Paul and Silas visit Thessalonica and the report of the pagans is those who are turning the world upside down have come here. But what was Paul doing? He wasn't marching for anything. He wasn't going and knocking on the door of government officials and telling them what they were doing wrong. He wasn't writing letters to the Roman government. He was preaching Christ relentlessly. That is our mission. And may God help us. Well, next week you're going to look at Machen's life. We'll take a couple of weeks actually to do that. And when we start digging in the book, so start reading. And may the Lord bless you through it. Brethren, let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for your mercy to us and rescuing us from the spirit of the age, the errorism of our culture. Lord, we don't attribute this to us being smarter than other people. We don't boast in ourselves and our potential. We recognize that we are just miserable sinners that you by your grace alone have rescued. And we praise you for that rescue. And may your grace fuel us this morning to come into your courts and to sing praises to your holy name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.